Lord, thank you for this evening, this opportunity we have to come together and to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this wonderful ch chapter in Zechariah. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This is one of my favorite stories in Zechariah. I've quoted it at various points in time. Zechariah chapter 3. This is a beautiful picture of how God deals with us as individuals. And it talks about the, the Messiah's coming. So chapter 3. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, have I, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and will clothe you with a change of raiment. And he said, Let them set a fair mitre on upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And I'm going to stop there because this is, we're going to start with just the, the first part of this picture. And so it, Zechariah is, is standing there. He's, he had the angel talking to him in the previous chapter. The angel's still talking to him. And it says, he showed him Joshua the high priest. Now, which high priest is, we don't know. We just know he's Joshua. Um, later on, we, we find out that it's, he's Joshua at the time of, of Zedekiah, the, the la, one of the last kings. So apparently he's the high priest at one of the very ends of, of this time of the time of Israel. And the angel of the Lord was standing next to the, the priest and the, Satan was standing at his right hand to resist him. The angel of the Lord oftentimes refers to Jesus. And I'm going to say that this is Jesus in this case. You've got Joshua and Jesus and Satan all standing before the Father in, at a time of judgment. And it says Satan was there to resist him or to oppose him or accuse him which is what Satan's job is before uh, when he goes to the courts of heaven. He is there to accuse us, to, to try to make God say, well, you know, look how bad your, your, your kids are. Uh, and so this is why this is a beautiful picture when you think about Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And all of this picture shows what we appear like when we stand before the throne of heaven, Jesus, our advocate, standing next to us, Satan, the accuser, standing next to, next to us. And then before the court starts, he says, okay, one moment, we've got to, we've got to change this person's clothing. And we see this right here as everything is, then the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Yeah. We kind of see this even when we go to Job. Satan comes to the courtroom of heaven and he still has access to the courtroom. He doesn't get to go anywhere beyond the courtroom of heaven, but he has access to the courtroom of heaven to bring charges against people. And the charges he's going to bring are not just against people in general. He's going to pick the Christians and the followers of God and say, you know, see how, bad see how bad your followers are? You know, this is, he's going to try to bring accusations. And just, just as he did with Job, in Job's case, it said that Job was a righteous and perfect man. 
And Satan's still bringing accusations against him. Well, he just wouldn't follow you if you didn't protect him so much. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't be this good. Satan is out to make us look bad before God. And if he could get away with it, he would do so. But I love this story because he says, Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? You know, and this is kind of an interesting um, picture. In Amos 4.11 and Jude 23, we get the idea that we are plucked out of the fires of hell in salvation. Jude 23. There's only one chapter. Verse 23. We are literally pulled from the fires of hell because of our salvation. Some people get closer to it than others. Some people get saved early on in their life, but they're still on their way to hell and being pulled from the fire of hell. Some people are actually having their toes toasted by the fires of hell before they, before they repent. You know, they, they wait to the last possible moment. They're on, they're on their deathbed and they, and, they, and they repent. Many repent somewhere in between. So we have this whole picture. Joshua, the high priest, and God says, I've pulled him from the fires. It is, isn't he, isn't he a, a, a firebrand? He's... And literally just means coal, piece of burnt, burnt wood. <laughs> Which, when you tie that in with his garments being filthy, <laughs> it gets to be quite a picture as we go forward in this, uh, in this statement that you know, God is out there to show people that he loves them. And you know, the question is, do, most people do not really understand how much God loves them. Amos 4.11 says, you have overthrown some of them as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return unto me, says the Lord. That's how he's talking to his people. I pulled you out of the fire. Literally pulled his people out of the fire. And in Jude it says the same, 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 same basic thing. And God is saying, I love you so much that I'm ready to pull you right from before you're in, in the fire. And we need to really understand God's love for the lost. We understand his, his love for us as Christians, and we kind of understood it when we got saved. But sometimes we forget about his love for the lost after we walk with him for a while, and we've, we've quote-unquote cleaned up our life a little bit, and we're, 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 we're thinking pretty highly of ourselves and and how, how lucky God is to have us because we got these nice clean garments on and, and we're serving him. And he's saying, I plucked you out of the fire. You deserve the fire. And here we see God telling Satan, is this not one that I have plucked from the fire? Because Satan is the accuser. And I, and I love this because it says, and now Joshua was clothed with Filthy garments, and the word for filthy garments here is excrement. Okay, he has even the worst of the filth on him. Okay, they're not just dirty, they're not muddy. He has been playing around in the, oh, let's make it clean as possible, toilet. (laughs) All right, Uh, and he is very dirty. He's, and, and basically, this has the implication of stinky, smelly, I mean, he is everything that could be possibly wrong. 
and Satan, and I, I just love this picture. Satan is at court with this guy in very filthy garments, and he's ready to make the accusation. The accusation against him. Uh, hey, God, see, the, see, see, the, see this one here? Look how dirty he is. How can you want him? And then before he even gets to speak, in verse 4, uh, he, the angel, says, that stood there before him, says, Take away the filthy garments from him. And behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with a change of raiment. This word for raiment is robes of state. Okay, so it's not just clothes. He has been putting on royal garments. So you just picture this. Satan is all there. He's ready to make a great accusation against this, this high priest. And God says, okay, get rid of the dirty clothes. Put, put royal robes on him. <laughs> yeah, you can almost picture the, the, you know, the picture, at least I do, the picture of Satan with his accusation is on his tongues. He's ready to make this great statement about how awful this person is. And just look at his clothes. And all of a sudden, he's looking at somebody dressed up as a prince, in this case, a prince or a princess. Yeah. And if that's not enough, he says, um, your iniquity has passed from you. God says, I have taken away, I have removed all of your iniquity. This is the beautiful picture. This is a picture of what Jesus does for us through his sacrifice. He takes off our filthy garments of our own righteousness. He says the, your iniquities are gone. And then he puts on royal garments upon us. So that when the father looks at us from the, from the judgment seat, he goes, oh, oh, another one of my children down there. Look how, look how good they look. And, and then he can turn to Satan and go, now what was your problem? Well, just, just look, uh, look, look at what, the, and, he, and he's tongue-tied. He has no accusation ultimately because he looks at us, we had the filthy garments, we're guilty, and he, and he turns to look at us and accuse us, and we're wearing royal robes. <laughs> and then if that wasn't enough, he said, and let them set a fair mitre upon his head, so they set a fair mitre on his head and clothed him with the garments. Again, the same, the same word for garments. And the angel of the Lord stood nearby. <laughs> stood by. So they put on a royal, royal garment and then they put on a fair headdress or a turban. And it literally is a turban. All right. But they've taken him from being filthy rags, filthy rags burnt, <laughs> deserving punishment, Satan's licking his chops as the accuser, and then he, before he even gets to speak, they go, okay, let's clean this guy up, and now, now we're, and, and I can almost picture Jesus turning to, and the father turning to him, okay, Satan, what was your problem? <laughs> what, what, what did you want to say? Uh, after they've cleaned him up, he turns to him and says, okay, what, what, what was it you wanted to say about this, about my child? <laughs> I, I get this picture, and I understand this is what happens to us. All through the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing, he says, put on Christ, be clothed in Christ, be found in Christ. All these, all these terms that talk about this type of a picture. We have the righteousness of Christ put on us. This can change everything about the way we should look at ourselves, 
because I am no longer guilty before God. I have the righteousness of Christ, no matter how bad or good I think I am, I have Christ's righteousness on me. And when Satan comes to accuse, he gets to accuse me, but he, all he gets to look at is the righteousness of Christ. He comes with all the facts that I'm a terrible, awful person and I commit a lot of sins and God looks at him and says, but the truth is he's dressed in perfect righteousness. And this is very important for us. Do we live by what we think the facts are or do we live by what God says the facts are? And this is hard sometimes for us because as much as we're told to walk by faith, we tend to walk by sight. And we listen to Satan's little yapping about how we're not worth anything and that we're miserable and we're terrible. And, if, and he'll tell us, if God, just, if God just knew how bad you were, you know, if God knew what you had done yesterday and last night or just a minute ago, God wouldn't love you. And God is up there saying, I see you as perfect. I see you as forgiven. This high priest had no standing before God when he started this, started this vision. And God clothes him with perfect clothing and puts a nice, nice turban on him and says, and I can almost picture, it doesn't say this, but I picture him turning to say, okay, now Satan, what was, what was it you wanted to say about him? We need to start seeing ourselves as God sees us when we're saved. More importantly beyond just seeing ourselves that way, we need to see each other that way. How many times, and it falls down because we can't see ourselves that way, how many times do we treat other Christians poorly because we're not seeing them the way God sees them? We're seeing them after their mistakes. We're seeing them after what, they, what they've done wrong and not in their forgiven, perfect status. And you know, when we start criticizing other Christians, what are we doing to God? We're slapping him in the face as well. This is your child, your, your precious possession, your perfect, precious, valued possession. And imagine how you are if somebody criticizes something that you value. We usually get very defensive. I had a friend in college and he had a Mustang that was a rusted out piece of junk. But you know what? He loved that Mustang. And I made a comment one time that, you know, we were good friends, and, and he got mad at me, and he'd go, and he just about, he went off on me, and he never really went off on me, but he went off on me because I didn't see what he saw when he looked at his car. You know, I'm seeing a New England, a New England car from the, six, from the, from the uh, late 60s rusted out to nothing, and he's seeing the car that he was going to restore. You know, uh, but that was a great picture of how God is. We see a rusted out hunk of junk. And God says, I see perfection. I see it restored. I see it complete. I see it the way I say that it is, not the way you see it. And if we could just learn to see ourselves that way, number one, and quit criticizing ourselves for our mistakes. Quit being down on ourselves for when we make mistakes because God knows we're going to make mistakes, but he says we are forgiven and perfect in Christ. And then apply the same attitude toward his children. 
Our job is not to judge one another and criticize one another. That's the Holy Spirit's job, to convince us that we're a sinner and, and help us to change. Our job is to love one another and build each other up. And you know what? If we start building everybody up, what ends up happening? People go, well, if you build people up, they'll get, they'll get proud and egotistical. My experience is usually they come and start living up to what you say that they, what you, what you, what you're building them up for. I've, yeah, there are a handful of people that might get proud and arrogant, but for the most part, I've seen people, wow, somebody sees value in me. Somebody thinks that I have some hope. And they live up to that, that edification. Very rarely does it make somebody proud. And if they're really going to get that proud, I'm probably not going to build them up. You know, but most people need to be built up, and they'll live up to that. Because that's how God deals with it. He says, I see you as perfect. And it doesn't make us arrogant and proud. It makes me, wow, God, you, you know, I kind of know who I am, but you think, you think I'm that way? You really think I'm that way? Maybe I should try harder. And this is what happens, and this is the sad thing, is Satan is destroying families. A father and mother are supposed to be building up their children and encouraging them to live at a, at a higher level. And as God is working in families, we can see that happening. But when, God, when, God, when, when Satan destroys the family, we see a lot of attacking and the children become the problem. You know? And I've even heard parents say, well, if it wasn't for those kids, I w- we would have no problems. Well, you'd have other problems. If, you know, if it wasn't the kids, it would be the job. If it wasn't the job, it would be you know, the sports. If it wasn't the sports, it would be the animals. You know, there's always something that will be blamed. Why? Because human beings like to blame and it started right with our original pair blaming each other and God. You know, and then, you know, it started right from the very beginning. You know, Adam, what you do? Well, God, the woman you gave me, <laughs> you know, it's her fault, but by the way, God, you gave her to me, and if you, didn't have, if you hadn't given it to me, I wouldn't have had this problem. And, and uh, Eve just blamed the serpent. You know, but, and ever since, human beings have blamed Blame somebody. Can't be my fault. You know, if it, if it was my fault, I'd have to deal with it. So it's got to be somebody else's fault. It's got to be something else's fault. Yeah, they made me do it. Or if I, if, I just hadn't, if I had just had a better family life when I was growing up, I wouldn't have been this person. We, it happens over and over, and, and we will blame each other. This is why we've got to get over this when we're walking in Christ and having a godly, uh, biblical worldview. We go, God, I want to see myself the way you see me. And that should be our prayer. God, help me to see myself and other Christians the way you see them and myself. It will revolutionize the way we treat one another. I try to do it, and I'm not perfect at it by any stretch of the imagination, but I try to build people up and edify them because I really do understand how special God's children are. And you know what? I never wanted people to criticize my kids. And like I say, if you pick something that is really precious in your life, if it's not your kids, pick something that's precious to you. you know, go, to, go to a newlywed and, and, and attack, their, attack their spouse. <laughs> uh, you know, try to make their spouse look bad in, in front of them while, while they're newlyweds. Now, a year or two down the road, they might not care as much, but while they're newlyweds, 
you know, they're still wearing those rose-colored glasses and there's nothing wrong with their spouse. And you go and attack them and you're probably going to have a fight on your hands. And yet we will attack God's bride, his children. I'd have no doubt that God gets a little irritated sometimes at the attacks that are made against his, his children and his bride. By his, own, by his own family, no less. It's bad enough that Satan tries it. It's bad enough that the world tries it. But we attack each other? Oh, that's got to be, you know, something that angers him. You guys are supposed to build each other up. You're supposed to love. You're, you're supposed to be one body, and you're cutting yourselves, and you're, and you're attacking yourselves, and grinding. Your, you're taking your hand and grinding it in the, in the meat grinder, and you, th- and you think you're doing something good. And we need to be careful about this. And our church, luckily, isn't that, that bad as far as I know. I mean, I haven't heard a lot of attacks on one another, but we all do it at some point. We all will say something negative about somebody or something. And we need to get out of that mentality and really start saying, God, I need to see people the way you see them. And if we can have that prayer, not just amongst his people, but what if we had that prayer for the lost? God, help me to see the lost the way you see them. He sees them as prisoners headed for hell. They're bound up in their prison. They are in chains and fetters headed toward prison. And he died for them. He loved them so much he died for them. He's He's not wishing anybody into hell. He died so they didn't have to go. Are we having that attitude toward others? Or there are people we look at and say, well, you know what, God, they're just in too much trouble to go talk to them. Or they're so bad, God, how, could you, how, can I, how can I go talk to them? That hopefully is not our attitude toward the lost. I want to see people saved, and I want to see them turn to Christ and be clothed in righteousness so that they can help lead others to Christ. And this is this picture here. Once they're there, they're going to be clothed in Christ. And let's continue here. And then the angel of the Lord protested, uh, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So he's standing next to her, ready to, ready to defend, even though there's now nothing to defend. So we have the courtroom of heaven. Jesus puts them, he tells the angels, clothe this person in the righteousness. Then he's just standing there. He has nothing to defend anymore. The person is clothed in perfect righteousness and, and, and attitude, and they're standing, standing there. Satan is kind of tongue-tied because all of a sudden his accusations are gone. You know, look, look at that. Uh, uh, where'd all those spots go? Where, where'd all the spots go? Where'd all the stink go? You know, the, well, the stink is burn, being burned you know, in, in the fire out there. We've got new garments on this person. The beauty of what God does for us. And I love it because it's him that does it. I don't go out and try to well, you know, before I go to court, I've got to go out and take my clothes off, wash them in the water, and get them as clean as I possibly can get them clean. Then I'll go to court. God says, you don't even have that option. You're going to show up in the court. We're going to say, get rid of those dirty rags. We're going to put clean clothes on you, and then we're going to hold court because you can't get them clean enough. This is the beauty of what God does. He says, I am the one that's going to do this. Then he turns, now he starts speaking to Joshua in verse 6. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, and that is spoke, spoke. It's not, he's not arguing with him, 
but he's speaking, speaking, exhorting. And he says, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my charge, then you shall also judge my house and shall keep my courts. And I will give you places to walk among the, these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for you are men, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I bring forth my servant, the branch, and behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So here is the statement to Joshua. And he says, if you will walk in my ways and you will keep my charge. All right. So this is what we are asked to do as Christians. We are, we are not commanded to walk in his ways and keep his charges to earn our robes. He says, if you want the position, because we've got this then coming in. If you want what's coming, keep my commandments. Keep my charges. We do not obey God's rules to get into heaven. We do not obey God's rules to get blessed by him. He's already blessing us with beautiful garments and righteousness and heaven. We do not keep God's rules so that he will like us more. He already loves us as much as he will ever love us. It says, then you shall judge my house. We, as the bride of Christ, will rule with him in heaven. Now, what we're going to rule over, partially the angels, what else we're going to rule over, I have no idea, but we're going to rule in heaven with Christ. And it says, and you shall keep and, and shall keep my courts, the whole offices of going, going there. And it says, you shall judge my house and shall keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk amongst these that stand by. Who was standing by in this case? We had Satan, the angel of the Lord, and other angels. We will rule over the angels when we are glorified. This is the interesting thing, because Paul even tells us the statement that right now the angels are higher than human beings. They take care of us, but the work that he uses is they are our um, tutors. Just as in the homes, when the children are in charge, the slaves would take care of them in the old days. The slaves would be controlling the children, monitoring the children, teaching the children. But when the children got of age, that role flipped. Now, the of age child, the adult, was in charge of the slave. Angels have a position over us of tutoring. Now, we have the Bible and all this, but so it's not a perfect one. But there will come a time when we get our glorified bodies, we come of age, and we will rule and be masters over the angels. Now, there may be some angels that we might just be a little more uh, uh, liking. You know, I'm thinking more of the ones that protected us. 
you know, that, that, uh, that, nanny, that nanny slave that took care of you when you were growing up, the, the servant that taught you how to hunt and fish and, and taught you your books, I would almost guarantee you had a little softer spot for them than every other slave on the, in, your, in, your, in your home. There may, be those slave, they, there may be those angels that we have a little softer spot, especially when we see it from God's point of view. My wife always said that she's going to know her, her guardian angel because I've told you the story, her tie rod broke and, and she made three turns and she goes, I'm going to know my angel. They're going to be covered with the grease from, the, from, the, from, from protecting me. And you know, she's saying it in a jestful way, but I do believe that she'll get to meet that angel one day and there's going to be just that little soft spot in her heart for that angel compared to other angels that didn't, didn't have her back, didn't help her. Uh, but we're going to rule over them. What else we're going to rule over? I don't know because in the, we're told all through the scriptures that there's going to be commerce. There's going to be buying and selling and, and activity coming into Jerusalem for eternity. What will happen out there? Are the angels doing all the work? I don't know. Will, certain, you know, will there be others out there doing work? I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting that you say that because a lot of people believe that that's what drove Satan's rebellion in heaven was the creation of man that we were going to be placed higher than them and he did not want to have somebody higher than him. Now I, don't, I can't say whether that's, it makes sense to me and he was able to draw away a third of the angels because he was not going to humble himself and let these men that were lower than them rule over them, be higher than them. Now, you know, I don't know. There is a school of thought that goes that, exactly down that line, that they were jealous, that Satan and the third of the angels were jealous of man who was going to have a higher place than them in the end. Uh, now, I can't, pick, I can't place that in Scripture necessarily, but when we look at the pride and jealousy of, of uh, Satan, it, it would not be a far-fetched uh, view. Um, so we... When we obey God, we are given benefits, and we will rule. Now, Jesus told the people that when they were obedient, that they would rule over cities. So the more obedient we are, the more authority we will have in heaven. And there may be people that have just barely getting by, you know, got in by, 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 by smoke and fire, they're just as perfect, they're just as righteous. They may be the ones that are doing the work and they're not ruling over anything. They're doing all the work. Now, work in heaven is going to be different than work down here. They'll still rule some angels, but uh, you know, those who have been following God will get to rule blocks or cities or, or nations or whatever it might be. You're going to make a comment. Huh? Part of our reward. Yeah, it would be what we get to do. Uh, and how much we get to rule over. Somebody really high up may get to be, you know, helping to rule big, big chunks of the, of the planet, while others are just over, over counties and, and cities. We don't fully understand what it is, but Jesus did say that you will rule over cities. And now, can everybody rule over a city? Somebody's got to be ruled. <laughs> so I don't know how this works. This is true. There's a bunch of angels up there, so we don't know exactly. There's a lot of things in the Bible that is not fully clear to us about heaven. 
And we do know we rule over angels and we don't know what that means and how far down. You know, maybe, maybe the guy who's a street sweeper gets to rule over the angel who actually does the work while they, you know, we don't know. We don't know what, what it is. We don't even have a concept of what perfection is. Because Jesus said that to be the, the ruler you needed to serve, and I don't think that's going to change in heaven anyway. You know, good rulers are always servants. They can make decisions and have to make decisions, but good rulers and leaders are always servants. They care about the people under them and take care of them and help them. When I was in management, most of the time I would tell people why I wanted something done and get them to want to do it. Now, there were times when it was just busy and it said, do. Just, but, but what, no, just get it done. I'll, if you need an ex explanation, I'll tell you later. There are times when leaders just have to say, do something. But a good leader is always one that's going to show somebody how to do it, help them get it done, and prepare them for it. And here we see Jesus saying, to Joshua, if you keep my commandments, if you keep my charges, then you shall judge my house and you shall keep my courts and I will give you places to walk among these that stand by. Who is the group that he's standing by? He's in heaven. He's standing before the throne of God with the, other, with the angels. And he knows that just a moment ago, he did not belong there. He is in the worst of the worst garments, in the perfect place, and now he's standing there with righteous garments on. And he says, keep my words. This is why when somebody will say, well, I got saved and I'm a new creation, now I'm just going to go out and sin so God can show me more grace, I don't understand how they can even begin to think that way. It makes me wonder, were they saved? Do you really understand how filthy your garments were before you were clothed in righteousness, if you were clothed in righteousness? The, the picture that I have, when I, know, when I look at myself and know who I am and know how God sees me, I want to serve him. I want to do what he, what he asks. Because I go, I know who I am by sight. I know who I am by what God says I am. I like to live by what God says I am. I like to live that way because I'm not, worth, I'm not worth knowing. I'm not worth being that way. So I try to honor him and, and say, God, I want to be who you say I am. And this is the beauty of this. When we build people up, we edify. They will live up in more cases. Then he goes in verse 11. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for they are men wondered at, or, or uh, their tokens, okay? Their, their tokens, their signs. We as Christians are signs to people. You know, they may think we're crazy, and, but when we're living a righteous life, people notice. They may not understand it. They may think something's wrong with us. They might think we're crazy, but you know, if they look at us long enough and we walk righteously long enough, we become a sign. And people go, 
I don't quite know what they have, but I think I want it. You know, if we're living for God, we're walking in, we're walking in that righteousness to the best of our ability, People, and we're walking in peace. Right now, with all the craziness that's going on with the election and all this stuff that's going on, if we walk in peace and trust in God, we will be a wonder to the, to the rest of the world. We will be a wonder to other Christians that are all panicky. Well, what, 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 what? God did not lose control. He has not lost control of any bit of this. He will turn the hearts. Right now, you look by sight, and Trump is not going to win. Now, whether he wins or not doesn't matter to me. I'd love to, I'd love to have another four years of righteous, righteous direction and, and everything, even though he's a jerk. I would love to have another four years of somebody putting pro-life judges on the bench and, and pushing laws that are, that are godly laws. If he loses, God's still in control. God did not just walk away from us when he, when, at this time. He might, might have walked away from our country, but he has not walked away from us, his children. And just as he did in Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was taken, the righteous suffered as much as the unrighteous. Now, there were more unrighteous than righteous at that time because they were very much against God, very much the way we are in our country today. There are not a lot of righteous people out there. There's lots of people who say they're Christians. And you talk to them, and most of them don't have a clue what it means to be a Christian. You know, just because somebody tells you you're a Christian, you need to really follow up with that and go, what does that mean to be a Christian? You'd be surprised at what kind of answers you get. You know, well, I, I try to do good things. I go to church a couple times a year, uh, and that makes you a Christian. Oh, yeah, that makes me a Christian. Back in the 60s, we heard it all the time. Well, I'm an American. Of course I'm a Christian. I haven't heard that one. I haven't heard that one since the 60s or 70s. But there was a time when they figured that you were an American, you were a Christian. Yeah, yeah, and I've loved that one too. Well, Grandpa was a Christian. That was a pastor. Uh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad for you. But what? What about you? We see here. He says they will be a sign. We need to live a life that when people look at us, they know we are different from the rest of the world. They may think we're crazy. They may think we're nuts. But if they watch us long enough, they'll see the peace that passes understanding. And eventually, they'll probably start asking, what do you have that I don't have? And if it's somebody who's into drugs and alcohol, they may even ask you, what drug are you taking because you have peace that I don't know about? I've actually been asked that question. What drug are you? And I'm on Jesus. Let me tell you all about him. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything other than you. <laughs> but we need to live a life that says, I have something. We are a sign and a token to the world. As Jesus said, we are a light to the world. A light that is placed on a hill cannot be hidden. And we are a light in a dark world. And one thing that's good, the darker the world gets, the brighter our light shines. Because darkness never overcomes light. So if we are holding the light of Christ and we're lifting him up, 
the darker the world gets, the brighter the light is, or the brighter the light seems. All right? When we turn these lights on, when I first come in, turn the lights on at 4 o'clock, when the light's out, it's very, they, do, they, improve the, they improve the room a little bit. But right now, it's totally dark outside, and they really light up the room. A candle stuck in a, in a, in, during the daylight doesn't, put out, doesn't seem to put out much light. Get to the middle of the night with no other lights on, and that candle lights up everything. So the worse things get for us, the brighter our light is going to shine to the world and the more noticeable it is that we're going to be different. Now, that doesn't mean the world's going to like it. Okay? Uh, the world is like the ro roaches and mice. You turn the light on and they scatter. All right? And the world will try to put the light out many times. But many will be drawn to the light. And so we want to keep our light lit. And so when it gets dark, in many ways we should be excited because it'll shine brightly. When the apostles, 12 men, well, let's say 500, you know, because that was a big one, 500 people in Jerusalem turned the world upside down because the light shone so bright in that dark world. We are, the world is darkening. Our light is going to shine. Now, the result is they may try to put, extinguish our light. Some people will come to it. There will be trials and tribulations, but our light will shine and illuminate the darkness around us. So it's good. And then he says, the men are to be wondered at, and behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, the branch on mine is all capitalized. Yes. <laughs> um, well, Isaiah 4, 2, um, is, Jeremiah 23, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, Jeremiah 33, uh, 15. Je <laughs> uh, Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. Jeremiah 33, 15. And I, I left out Isaiah 11, 11. All indicate that the Messiah is the branch. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I am the branch. All right, uh, the branch all through it is the Messiah. So he says to to um, jo uh, Joshua, you will you will be wondered at, you will be a sign, and I will bring a branch, the Messiah. This is the beauty of this when we start looking at how the scriptures all work together. And then in verse nine he says, "Behold, the stone that I have laid before." Joshua. Isaiah 28, 16 uh, is the Jesus of the stone. Uh, Psalm 118, 22. He's the cornerstone that has been rejected. Uh, Matthew 24, 30, uh, 24, uh, 21, 42. Jesus said, I am the stone that the builders rejected, referring back to, to uh, Psalms. And in Acts 4.11, he says, I am the, they, they say that Jesus is the stone the builders have rejected. So here, we get a beautiful picture of the Messiah. And he says, I'm going to give you a branch. And he says, behold, the stone that I have laid before you, Joshua. The stone. We look at this, 
during the wandering in the wilderness, they had a stone that gave forth gushing water. And there are those that believe because that stone seemed to follow them wherever they went. That stone was there giving water. They never had to worry about water. No wonder Moses got so much trouble when he hit it with the stick. Because it was Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Struck him one time because he was crucified. Yeah. And the next time he was just to speak to it because he'd already been crucified. And, he was, and the water was to come out. And God graciously gave them water even though Moses didn't didn't give the grace of God message that he was supposed to give. So we have this picture, and that is why he got into trouble, and then he stayed in trouble because he never repented. His anger made him strike it, and then he never repented of his anger and his striking of it. And from that point on, he always blamed the people. It's your guys' fault that I'm not going into, heaven, uh, going into the promised land. He never repented, and God knew that he wouldn't repent. And that's why he was told he's not going into the promised land. So we have this beautiful stone that's set before Joshua for him to be able to stand on with a firm foundation. Jesus is our stone, the cornerstone where everything is built upon. And it says here in this one, and it says, One stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will grave, engrave the graving on it, says the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity from the land in one day. The seven eyes. All through the scripture, God talks about the seven eyes, the seven spirits. And seven is the number of perfection. So in perfection, God watches over us. Now this is something that scares some people. God is always watching you. And people get very afraid of this. I heard a pastor one time, and it changed my way of thinking about God always watching us. He said, how does somebody look at the one they love? Their eyes can't be taken off the one they love. And I got thinking about that. God is not looking at us for what can he find us doing wrong. He's saying, see that, see that? that's my bride over there. That's the one I love. Look, look at him. And I think he's pointing them out, pointing us out. That's the one, that's my love. That's, and he just can't keep his eyes off us because of how precious we are. If we can start changing the way we think about God seeing us, it'll change everything about how we act, everything about how we treat others, everything about how we relate to God. If we think God is watching us so he can find us doing something wrong, we're going to be cowering from God and not wanting to be around him. If we're looking at him and saying, wow, he really loves me, he just, he just can't take his eyes off me because he loves me so much, you know, that changes the way we're going to interact with him. Wow, God loves me so much. And we're going to go running to him. Not going to try to find some place to hide because he's always watching me. But, hey, the one that loves me, look, at they're, they're, they're gazing at me. They're gazing at me with love. They, they're, they're, in, they're enraptured by me. We don't really think of ourselves as, being, as enrapturing God. And I don't know what God sees us in us that enraptures him, but he loves us so much that that is what his, his attitude is. We are loved by him, and we have captured his heart, and he wants us. 
If we can really understand how much God wants us and loves us, it will change a lot of the way we act, a lot of the things we do. And then he says, and I will remove sin in one day, the iniquity of the land in one day. That has already happened. Iniquity has been removed. On the cross, Jesus took iniquity and removed it. It is buried in the deepest sea. It is separated as far as the east is from the west. There is one unforgivable sin that can be committed that will send somebody to hell. And that is to reject Jesus Christ. That is the unpardonable sin. This is why when a Christian says, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin, it's like, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, you have not, com you have not committed the unpardonable sin. To reject Jesus is the only one that will get you to hell. When people stand before the white throne judgment, they're going to stand in their own righteousness, which is filthy rags, and God's going to ask them one question, what did you do with Jesus? As they're standing around the throne room of heaven in filthy rags. Now the one thing most lawyers will try to do with their clients is get them in decent clothes uh, before they go into court. Clean them up, make them look good. When we stand before the courtroom of heaven, or we won't as Christians, when the lost stand in the courtroom of heaven to be the final judgment, they're going to be dressed in their best clothes, their righteousness. A bunch of filthy, stinky rags that this, first start, this chapter started with, with excrement and blood and stains all over them. And God's going to ask them, what did you do with my son? And the answer is going to be obvious because they're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They rejected him. And they will be cast into hell for eternity. God has removed. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't, he didn't remove the consequences for our bad deeds. But he's removed the iniquity. There's still consequences. When we do wrong, there are consequences. When the world does wrong, there are consequences. But the iniquity, the sin, has been covered by the sacrifice. When the sacrifice lamb was made for Israel once a year, it covered all the sin of Israel. Now, they didn't make them lose their consequence or anything, but they had to accept that sacrifice. They could look at it and say, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, don't know. I don't care that that lamb was slain for me. You know, I, I'm okay on my own. I've done enough good. I'm, I, I'm not that bad a person. I don't care that they sacrificed that lamb. And the world is doing that to Christ. I don't care that he got sacrificed. God, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a pretty good person. Or they go to the other extreme. I'm just so bad I don't care about God because God doesn't care about me. If they just understood the love of God. And this is why sometimes the greatest thing you can say to somebody when you're witnessing to them, is God loves you. And you'll hear people go, well, if you knew anything about God, God knows everything about you and he still loves you. And that's a great opportunity then to quote John 3.16. And then if you really want to go into it, John 3.17, for God came, Christ came into this world not to condemn to the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's a powerful verse. Very few people will ever go back, go on into John 3.17. God didn't come to condemn. He wants us to go to heaven. His heart is for us to go to heaven.
And then the last part, the last verse, verse 10. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall, every man, uh, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. I want you to really look at this one. Shall, every, shall call every man his neighbor. What did the scribe say to Jesus? Who is my neighbor? When we're walking with God, we'll call everyone a neighbor and invite them to a feast. We... Well, the vine, well, Jesus said he's the vine. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, it's more, more clear. In this case, yes, I think you're right, is that he's saying, come, we're going to feed from the vine, and the fig tree is usually, uh, olive and figs are re- usually referred to Israel. So he's saying, come, enjoy this meal with God. And we as Christians are a family. Hopefully we're not a family that isolates ourselves from the world. And we're calling the world to come dine. Just as in Revelation 3.20 it says, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and, and call unto me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Now, the context of that, he's talking to the church. But he also talks to each individual person. I'm knocking at your door. Are you hearing me? Are you going to invite me to come in? We are to help the world and invite them to come in to a feast. Because they do not have what they're looking for. They're looking for peace. They're looking for acceptance. They're looking for forgiveness, even though they don't really understand they're looking for forgiveness at the time. Ultimately, they're looking for peace. And everything that this world will give them is vanity. It's empty. And they will struggle trying to fill it with all the empty. And if you ever try to fill, fill a big hole with empty, you're going to find it's still going to be a hole. And that's what we're told through the scriptures. Ecclesiastes is one of those great books. No matter what you do, it's empty. But we also see it in our own lives when we try to, when we try to get away from God and try to fill things with things other than God. It's empty. When the world tries to fill that hole with other things, they're empty. If I just get rich enough, I'll be happy. No. If I just get famous enough, I'll be happy. If I just have enough friends, I'll be happy. If I get married and have a large family, I'll be happy. Without God, nothing will give us true happiness. We might be happy for a few minutes, you know, we get our, get our top promotion and we'll be, okay, I'm here, I'm at the top, I'm all happy, and then it'll get empty. It just doesn't last. You know, we have, our, we have our kids and everything seems to be happy for a little while. And then they grow up. And then they become teenagers and know all the answers to everything. And argumentative. And then, they, and then someday later they get old enough to kind of remember that we're smart. <laughs> you know, but even that's not going to make us happy. We cannot fill our life with anything but God because it's an infinite-sized hole and only an infinite God can fill that infinite hole. And we need to be able to say, God, I want you. And the good news is, for some strange reason, he wants us. And as soon as we say, God, I want you, he's there. 
and he comes into us, fills that emptiness up, and the Holy Spirit fills us, and God fills us, and the, and the Son fills us, and there's plenty of infinite, infinite God in there to fill up that empty hole, and we start living in peace, knowing that there is a plan in place, and knowing that there's a God in control, and we have a peace that passes understanding, and people start noticing all because of what God does for us. He does the work. All I've got to do is say, God, I need you. And he's saying, I've been waiting. I've been waiting for you to say that. And in he comes. And he goes, hey, angels, get, that, get, get them cleaned up. Get them cleaned up. Put the righteousness of Christ on them. And then he comes in and he dwells inside us. And he changes who we are from the inside out to match who we are on the outside. And this is the beauty. He clothes us immediately. He lives in us. He starts cleaning the inside to make it match what is on the outside, that what, what he sees. And so that we become like him, not just on the outside, which is immediate. He sanctifies us and we become like him. And then one day he's going to glorify us and we will be completely like him in all that we do in perfection. We won't become God. We're not going to become omniscient. We're, we're omniscient and omnipresent, but we will become like him and not sin. This is the beauty of what's coming to this. And this is one of the reasons, this is one of my favorite chapters, and it's definitely in this book, but one of my favorite chapters in all of the scriptures is just how beautiful this picture is of what God does for us. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, if there's anybody listening that doesn't know you, we ask that they will come to you and admit that they are a sinner and choose to follow you and seek after you and ask you to come into their heart and that they will seek out a church to be taught and, and raised up. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church P.O. Box 65 Chloride, Arizona 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.